Well, we begin a Advent sermon series this morning. Looking for my glasses. From the, from the book of Ruth, which in your Bibles is a book between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. So I'm going to read the first chapter of Ruth. And each Sunday, we'll just look at one chapter over the next four weeks of Advent. Hear God's word to us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they, returned, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? I have, yet, have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband." If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She said, See, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave with you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me, do so to me, and more so, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her son, with her, she said no more. 
So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite with her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we ask that you meet us this morning in the ordinariness of Sunday worship, which we do week after week, and the ordinariness of our lives. Give us, give us um, a sight of you, of your love and your faithfulness to us, and of your care and direction of our lives, especially in this season. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Your life before God is a hidden life. What do I mean? I mean that God's activity in your life, his plans, his guidance of your path from day to day, from month to month, from year to year, is hidden from your sight. You cannot see what he is doing. You cannot understand what his purposes are exactly. And sometimes, perhaps, looking backwards, we might catch a glimpse, make some approximate guesses about what God is up to, but to look forward, to seek to discern what God is doing looking forward is impossible. The spiritual life is a hidden life. And by hidden life, I also mean that God's actions within the affairs of men are ordinarily hidden beneath and within the normal course of history, hidden and mixed in with human decisions and actions and the events of history and all the consequences that flow from them. And rarely in our lives are we able to point and say, see here, like we would with a person that has influenced us or impacted us or acted upon us, and say, see here, this is God, this is God, God did this. This is God's action, this is God's work. Now, this may sound like a rather secular take on the spiritual life. Does God still not intervene in extraordinary and miraculous ways in the affairs of men? Does, is it not possible to give an account of God's actions as the free and transcendent Lord over all things? Surely, surely he does intervene miraculously in our life, and surely he shows himself in creation and history as the free Lord of all, 
but the vast majority of our lives, I would say 99.9%, we do not experience God in these ways. We do not experience God in extraordinary ways with divine interventions, interruptions. God is out of sight. God remains hidden. And we must infer his presence from events and experiences. And the book of Ruth is about our hidden life with God. Ruth has been described by some scholars as a secular narrative in the Hebrew Bible. And by secular, they don't mean anti-theological or not having any reference to God, but they have, it's a description of, of how the book has been written. The book of Ruth is unusual among biblical narratives in that it records no supernatural interventions of God within the story in the way that we see in so many other books of the Bible. The narrator makes no mention of God's actions or reactions to the events that happen in the book except for one very explicit one at the end, which has to do with a pregnancy. And this is the very end of the book. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. That is the most direct God talk that you get from the narrator. All the other clues about God we have to gain from dialogue and how the book is put together. And you might just contrast this briefly with another book, which is uh, goes right before it, which was written at the very, uh, which was, happens at the very same time in history, which is the book of Judges. There, the, the writer of Judges, who is a different writer, <laughs> speaks quite frequently and often about God's actions and interventions in history. I'll just give you some quotes here. This is what I mean by not secular. <laughs> the Lord was with the house of Joseph. The hand of the Lord was against the people. The Lord raised up judges. The Lord left the nations in the land to test the people. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to save them. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war. And the Lord gave the king of Mesopotamia into his hands. What you see in the book of Judges all over is that the author, the writer, is drawing attention to human events and actions and then interpreting them, helping us understand and making explicit what God is doing in the midst of it. God is performing all kinds of things, all, doing all kinds of things, reacting and acting. And this is what the majority of biblical narrative does. It makes God's intentions more explicit and gives us the meaning behind them. But this, again, is not so with the book of Ruth. With the exception of the conception of Ruth's son, the writer explains nothing to us from God's perspective. Instead, again, we're left to sort of infer and to draw conclusions based on how the story is written, how the events unfold, and what the the, the, the characters in the story tell us about God. This is, I think, precisely how we experience God in our day-to-day, -day, pretty much the whole of our lives. We have no narrator, no prophet, 
who can look at the events of our lives, our decisions, the things that have happened to us, and then infallibly tell us what God is doing, whether he favored us, whether he, that his was an act of judgment against us because of sin. We don't have that knowledge. We are left to discern the meaning of God's engagement with our lives through prayerful reflection, through reading God's Word, and through being with other believers in conversation and life and community. I think one of the great values of this book, the book of Ruth, is how it equips us for the hidden life. And there are two theological themes that run throughout the whole book that we'll pay attention to um, every Sunday, and I want to draw your attention to them now and introduce them to you. They are the providence of God and the hesed of God, or loving kindness. The providence of God and God's hesed love, or kindness. In the beginning of your worship folder, there's a quote from the Heidelberg Catechism, which offers a a quite succinct and eloquent definition of what providence is, and I want to read it to you. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with a hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and providence. All things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Providence means that God is involved in all the little details of our life, guiding and directing the whole course towards his ordained ends. Providence is that means that nothing happens to us or escapes God's notice or care. Nothing enters into our lives that can ultimately block, roadblock, thwart his purposes and design and ends for us. And the ordained ends of God for his people is loving fellowship with him. Providence is ordered to his love. Providence is nothing less, less than the divine love of God working itself out in the times of our life towards their fulfillment and consummation. That is providence, and this brings us then to the other theme of the book of Ruth is hesed. Hesed is a Hebrew word that is applied to God and to human beings, and it is often translated as loving kindness. It's as a word, very difficult to translate by one word in English. You'll see it translated as mercy, loving kindness, faithfulness. First and foremost, hesed, as it applies to God, has to do with God's love. But not love in, as an emotion, but, but love as, in terms of God's covenant. That God has made a promise and coveted himself to the people of Israel, to his people. And he is always faithful to that. And, and that, that governs his disposition towards his people. It is the always there, never failing love of God. That's what Hesed love is. Um, perhaps the most well-known verse of, the, of God's Hesed love is Lamentations 3, 23. The Hesed love, or the steadfast love of the Lord, never ceases. His mercies, his Hesed. 
never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Hesed love is covenantal. It is intimate and personal. It combines all these things together. But it also is applied to human beings. And in the book of Ruth, there's, again, the writer never speaks directly of God's hesed love to his people or towards Naomi or Ruth, but it becomes very clear that it is there. It's actually spoken more of the actions of Ruth and Boaz, hesed. There is no explicit, again, mention of hesed towards God's love, but what you see as we read the book of Ruth and we trace out the story is we see the intertwining of God's providential uh, guidance with his hesed love and his faithfulness. The providence of God and the hesed love of God are integrated in our experiences. God works his providential love out towards us, and he demonstrates it through the hesed love of other people. The kindnesses of God come to us, I think, in life most clearly through the kindnesses of others. Now, God's providence is not such a hard thing to embrace when we are on the sunny side of it. When we experience fruitfulness and health and prosperity and blessing, it's very easy to give thanks to have a sense that God is in control, that, that he is working out his loving purposes for your good and for your flourishing. However, when you are like Naomi, when you find yourself on the dark side of providence, bereaved and empty-handed, it's harder to accept that God is in control. Or perhaps you accept that God is in control, but you speak a, like Naomi, as one that is bitter, one that questions whether God is ultimately working all things towards your good. And I think the hard thing about um, having a consistent doctrine of God's providence is that if we want to embrace the right hand of God that is full of blessings and good things, we must also accept the left hand of God, which brings hardship and difficulty. God, of course, is not the author of evil. Everything that God created was good, and yet even rebellious evil from human creatures does not escape his control, and he is able to use it and turn it towards good. He's able to reintegrate it into the narrative, into the story. But to be sure, nothing happens in our lives, good or bad, that does not come from the hand of the Lord. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? That's what Lament Jeremiah says in Lamentations. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Ask the writer of Ecclesiastes or the prophet Isaiah. God says... I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? 
Your work has no handles. This is humbling truth, knowing that God brings not just good things, but also bad things in our lives. And Naomi has seemingly lost everything. Her husband has died. Her sons have died. She has been driven from Israel to the land of Moab because of famine with her husband and sons, and now she returns empty-handed, childless, as a widow. And as a woman in her time, without a husband or without sons to care for her, this was basically a death sentence. She has no means of income. She has no inheritance, no life insurance, no social security. She's vulnerable to poverty, to mistreatment, and to death. And so it's very easy to be sympathetic with Naomi and her attitude. It's easy to be sympathetic when the the women of Bethlehem see her coming back after 10 years. And they say, is this Naomi? And Naomi responds this way, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. The the name Naomi in Hebrew means sweet. And Naomi says, don't call me sweet because I'm not sweet. Call me Mara because I'm bitter, which is what Mara means, bitter. God has dealt very bitterly with me. See, when... When you live in the shadows of God's providence, it's very easy to become bitter with God and bitter towards life. Again, the author never tells us why Naomi's husbands and her sons died. More than a few commentators argue that the death of the father, Elimelech, and the sons should be understood as God's judgment upon the family for having left the promised land for Moab. In Deuteronomy, God tells the people that when they obey him, the land, he will bless them with abundant rain and bounty. But if they disobey him and follow after other idols, God will close up the heavens and famine will come upon the people. And this book is written, or it's set in the time of the judges, in which we know that Israel was very rebellious and disobedient. And so it is very likely that famine is an act of God's judgment against the people. The other thing here you should note is about the the nation of Moab. And that the Moabites in particular are identified also in Deuteronomy as... Um, receiving special um, distinction for the way they treated the people of Israel with evil intent when they were wandering in the wilderness. And for this reason, the people were to stay away from the Moabites and not to accept them into their assembly. See, all these things, I think, um, add up to a very strong argument that perhaps the death of these men was an act of God's judgment for having resettled in Moab, but maybe not. 
Even if we accept that the famine was God's judgment, fleeing to survive a famine isn't necessarily wrong. You actually see this with the patriarchs in Genesis. Numerous times fleeing from the promised land when there's famine to Egypt or to other areas. And it was not seen as a lack of faith necessarily or as a sin. Moreover, I think when you look at the story and you see the way it plays out, you, and you see even the character of the, the Moabite um, daughters-in-law, Mo, Orpah and Ruth, you get a sense that perhaps these sons weren't such bad guys to attract the kind of women they had. And the way that Naomi, or rather Ruth, is received into the life of Bethlehem too, perhaps God is not holding this family's association with Moab against them. The reality is we don't know why these men died. That's the point. It is very possible it was a form of judgment. It's possible it was not. It's possible that God just permitted them to die for reasons that are not explained. And so I think it's important. The author does not tell us, so we should be cautious about being too dogmatic and insistent upon the exact meaning and reasons. This is hard though, right? I think one of the hardest things about being on the dark side of God's providence is the ambiguity. We want to understand why. What are the reasons? Why, Lord, did you let this thing happen? Sometimes I think that even if we knew that the, the, the difficulty that we have in our life is because of a specific sin, that would be easier than not having any reason at all. At least then we have meaning for why we are suffering. But not having any reasons is almost worse than having a very bad reason, right? To have reasons for, the, re for um, the difficulties in our life allow us to emotionally process the loss. Finding a meaningful framework for suffering is necessary if we move forward. And when we don't, we get stuck. Not only that, we become bitter, just like Naomi. But the problem with bitterness is that it tends to blind us. It blinds us to the ways and the places and the people and the presences of God's hesed in our life. Bitterness distorts our sense of reality. It makes God even more hidden and more inscrutable than he really is. And you see this in, in, in the story of Naomi. Um, in the speech when she says to the women of Bethlehem, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty, she makes this speech with Ruth at her side. After Ruth, who had made this remarkable pledge to her of devotion, where she says to Naomi, do not urge me to go, to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more so, if anything, but death parts me from you. Is Naomi really returning empty-handed? Does Ruth count for anything? 
while I'm sure that Naomi appreciates Ruth's presence, I'm sure that her companionship is not much consolation compared to the difficulty of what she has lost and the fear of what lay ahead. And yet, and this is really the whole irony of the book, the whole divine irony, God will use Ruth, Moabitess Ruth, to reverse Naomi's fortunes, to bring her back from a place of emptiness to fullness. But, but Naomi can't see this. She can't see that reality. It's hidden from her. And I think if we're honest, we were in Naomi's shoes, we would probably respond the same exact way. Next week, we will explore the story and character of this amazing woman, Ruth. But I want to draw your attention to one thing here and close. I want to draw your attention to this remarkable decision that she makes to stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Rather than staying with what was familiar and secure in Moab, she leaves. And you can imagine the conversation with her, her, her natural family about her going to, back to, to, to Israel with Naomi. You realize, Ruth, that they hate Moabites in Israel. Don't you see how reckless and foolish and dangerous going back with Naomi is? You are no longer obligated to her. When Ruth says, where you die, I will die, that was real and imminent possibility, perhaps more than Ruth realized what a dangerous situation she was going into. And even though Ruth lost her husband, she was not empty-handed like Naomi was. She could remarry. She did have economic security. She did have safety in her homeland, things that were familiar, yet she chooses to go. And not only that, she chooses to embrace Naomi's God, Yahweh. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Many commentators uh, see here in Ruth's decision to accompany Naomi um, her conversion, a conversion experience to the true God, Yahweh. And I think this is correct. Even if we don't know exactly when it happened or how it happened, it surely did not happen in the way we talk about conversion. And yet I think it is correct. What we know is that Ruth was raised to worship other gods, not the God of Israel. And yet here God has worked faith and trust in her heart, which leads her to make this radical and risky decision to leave her country, her home, her natural family, to go with her mother-in-law to Israel, a place that does not like Moabites, that in fact hates and despises them. Now we have seen faith like this in the man Abraham, but we really haven't seen it since Abraham. When God calls to Abraham, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And God calls Ruth in a similar way, and she responds with faith, and she goes forth. And just as through Abraham's act of faith, so with Ruth, God uses her to bless. To bless not just Naomi, but to bless all the nations. For as we learn at the end of the book, Ruth becomes the mother of Obed, 
and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, King David. And 26 generations later, in the line of David, you find Ruth the Moabitess, who is the great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus of Nazareth. Little could Naomi see or discern the real significance of the woman at her side when she returned. Little could she anticipate how God would use Ruth to return her to fullness in Bethlehem. Little could she see that God would choose Ruth's womb to be the womb that would lead to the greatest king of Israel. Little could Naomi imagine how God would give this Moabitess a place in the center of a family lineage of the future Messiah. Little could she dream that in her very hometown of Bethlehem, there would be born from another woman of humble estate of the same family lineage, the Messiah. All of this is hidden. All of this is hidden from Naomi. She cannot see it, even though it's in her presence yet unfulfilled. Brothers and sisters, the spiritual life is a hidden life. And yet the salvation and the hesed, the loving kindness, the mercy, the tenderness of God worked out in the ordinariness of our life is real. We begin our observances of Advent today, and Advent begins in hiddenness. Did you know in our sacred reading, Elizabeth went and she hid herself after she became pregnant. Mary goes to Elizabeth in hiding because of the shame of being pregnant without being married. Advent begins in hiddenness. It is a season of waiting patiently for the hidden God to be revealed. It is a season of watching closely for God's return in our midst. Advent shows us the hiddenness of God in saving beneath the surface of ordinary human lives and decisions. It teaches us that God works through ordinary families and through relationships, through quiet and mostly unseen acts of faith and faithfulness of his people, people like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, people like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon, and Joseph and Mary. All these people's lives are characterized by the same kind of hesed, a trust in God's hesed that gets reflected in their own hesed. Brothers and sisters, perhaps you are feeling like you are in the shadows of providence in your life, not on the sunny side. I encourage you, I encourage you during this Advent season to sing the song of the hidden life, which is the song that Mary gave us as she was hiding out with her cousin Elizabeth. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy, his hesed, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we pray for the eyes to see your little kindnesses, your little hesids in the actions and the words and the encouragements of those around us and the events around us, to be able to discern that 
you are working your uh, unbreakable, undefeatable, unthwartable love and purposes in our lives, slowly but surely, give us patience and give us hesed, Lord, towards one another and deepen in us the hope we have as we long and look towards the coming of our Savior again. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.